Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Hello and welcome to Future Proof, the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Jonathan McRae. Coming up on this week's programme, there's a woman in the UK that is very special indeed. Her name is Jo Cameron and she has analgesia, the inability to feel pain, which is remarkable in itself. But she also never feels anxious nor depressed, which is very rare indeed. What can we learn from her and how might we use this knowledge to tackle the enormous mental health problems we see across the world? Well, we'll find out in a few minutes' time. If you'd like to get in touch with the programme, you can email us, science at newstalk.com, or you can find us on Twitter. We're at Newstalk Science. First, though, it's time to look back at the week's science news. And joining me is uh, medic and immunologist Dr. Laura Dungan and from DCU's School of Chemical Sciences, Dr. Susan Kelleher. Uh, Susan, our first story has to do with putting artificial intelligence into space. What could possibly go wrong? I know. We've all, we've all watched it, right? We've all watched 2001 A Space Odyssey when the character, very well-known character, HAL 9000, um, will stand out in people's minds, of course, as being the onboard computer that was very, very helpful and identified when things were going wrong and minded the crew on the spacecraft um, until, of course, it went rogue and then had to be sort of dealt with. Um, but engineers now, bravely in NASA, are thinking that this may not be um, science fiction all that much longer. So we know that AI has lots of you know, ways that it can help science and engineering. NASA engineers are now looking to make artificial intelligence powered robots that they will send to explore the moon and distant planets when we get there. And that will be able to then talk to astronauts about what's happening. So they're planning to deploy one of these AI-based technologies on the Lunar Gateway, which is this um, space station that's going to be built on the moon. That's the plan. Um, But the idea is that there's a big problem when things go wrong very far away. So the moon is very, very, very far away. So um, we can't always know what happens to things um, if there's something going wrong, unless there's basically eyes on the ground. And the idea here is that these robots will be eyes on the ground for things that are happening. So... Um, the idea is that they'll be able to give information back to um, people in mission control saying that this equipment has found malfunctioned, that, you know, something has lost. When, when something has lost contact with communication with Earth, why? You know, has it, has it you know, been destroyed? Has it just ha- had a small techni- uh, technical issue? You know, what's the thing that's happening? So, so, so the idea is that it doesn't just have the raw data, but it actually performs some sort of... Uh, cognitive function sort of analysis of what's likely to have happened and relay that back exactly and a large part of that is to save a bit of time that you know you're not just getting loads and loads of data that um you know then have to trawl through all the technical details of everything and get your manual out and figure out what exactly is happening and like we all have that right with our cooker and something goes wrong and we're like you know it would be great if it could just tell us what was wrong with it right but the idea is that it's going to use a natural language interface so it'll be able to talk essentially and say oh this thing has happened so it will take the data it'll then spew it out into words that you know mission control can understand and then decipher what's going on in a much faster way and much more user-friendly way than just here's all this data off you go and figure out you know what's wrong with the thing up here you know from a distance so um yeah i think it's it's very i mean (laughs) it is science fiction because it's not real yet but um I guess we need to have um, eyes on the ground in these things because with the moon landings in the 1960s, a lot of the time uh, when things were nearly went wrong, they were fixed because the astronauts were able to see what was happening and they, they themselves manually adjusted, you know. 
No, absolutely. And, and the idea that these, these machines have an enormous amount of sensors and at the moment, it seems to me they just pump out the data from each sensor. But if you had some sort of um, intelligence there to be able to look at changes in one sensor, how they might relate to changes in another sensor and then put on a, a realistic scenario from that based on previous missions, which I'm presuming they feed all of the data from all previous space missions into it and, 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 and explain what, what an event looks like and how it might interpret future events. I mean, I can see this being hugely useful. Another amazing application of AI in space um, until it goes horribly wrong and kills us. Yes. All. <laughs> uh, he says that as a joke, but I'm sure everyone in, in the AI community who listens to this program is like, oh, for God's sake, did you have to? Lara, our second story is a really interesting idea. And, and it is taking a, a, an activity that many of us do every week and turning it into a, a medical testing experiment. Yeah, it is an interesting little study, isn't it? And, and it comes from um, Professor Ian Jones of Liverpool, John Moores University. Um, and what they decided to do was tap into a cohort of the population that doesn't have access to or chooses not to use smart wearables. So things, for instance, like Fitbits or even um, iPhones or, or other smartphones. And they wanted to see if they could use a simple test to try and look and see if this population had a condition called atrial fibrillation. So atrial fibrillation is where the top part of our heart, the atrium, um, it essentially vibrates rather than pumping properly. So your heart is supposed to pump properly. And when you have fibrillation, it sort of just wiggles. Um, and then what can happen is when it's not pumping and having all the blood flow through, a clot can form in a small part called the left atrial appendage. And then when it does decide to pump properly, it grabs that clot and it shoves it all the way up to the brain and it can cause a stroke. So having atrial fibrillation is a huge risk factor for stroke, but a lot of people don't know that they have it. So what they did was they assessed shopping trolleys as a potential, essentially wearable. And they set up the handle of shopping trolleys to be able to record an ECG when people hold onto it. So they recorded over 2000 participants and they put, had them hold the shopping trolley handle for 60 seconds to check and see whether they had essentially atrial fibrillation. And 220 people came back positive on the test. They were flagged up as potential having AF or atrial fibrillation and they were sent on to cardiologists. Now, the idea is wonderful and it's a great way to access the population. There's no evidence so far that we should be screening for atrial fibrillation because some people have small runs of it that is that aren't ongoing and don't need to be medicated. So you have to be careful that you're not over medicating people because you give them essentially clot busting medication, which means that they're more at risk of a bleed. The other problem with this was of those 220 people who flagged up, only 59 actually had the condition. So this is only about a quarter and that's poor. By any screening standards, a quarter is poor. Now, there's obviously going to be teething problems with the technology and I really like the idea, but at the moment, this isn't useful technology. Any screening that accounts for 75% of people who do not have the condition but have the worry of the condition until they're assessed by a cardiologist simply doesn't work. But if they can improve the technology, I think this is quite exciting. It's kind of it's a bit futuristic. It's a bit like the idea of all those movies where they scan your eye as soon as you walk into a shop and you get charged from your bank account for all these things. So it is, it is kind of exciting, but I just don't think it's there yet in terms of practicality. And also, I'm just thinking in my head, who is going to be willing to submit their biomedical data to a supermarket? I mean, even if, you know, you get all the assurances that the the, the data is going straight to some medical application, 
there's still that huge distrust that people have with sending their personal data through commercial entities. Like, I just don't see people saying, yeah, I'm okay with this. So practically, what's the point? No, I, I completely understand. And also, you could argue that simply checking your pulse, if your pulse is irregular, then you warrant going to the doctor and having it assessed. And that's a very quick and easy thing for people to be taught to do at home. So there's an argument against this as well. And also they flash up a big red cross if you come up as one of the people who is flagged, <laughs> which I think is probably, it's a red cross or a green tick. And I think I that would scare um, people, especially people maybe in the elderly population. So I'm not sure that it's there yet. That's a really bad idea. That's like shouting at someone, <laughs> you're about to have a heart attack. I mean, that is not um, a good idea if people are likely to have a heart attack, is it? Um, <laughs> Susan, our third story is an interesting one, and it has to do with the amount of irrigation we've been doing globally and its effect on the planet. Mm -hmm. So we know that the Earth rotates on an axis um, and that it's a little bit off what we would call the orbital plane, which is, you know, it's not 90 degrees to the way that we rotate around the sun. Essentially, the Earth is tilted and we know this it's tilted around 23.5 degrees um, from that centre. But the poles, um, north and south, um, through which the axis goes, they're not fixed in place. We know that as well. And that things can change this. And so changes in how the Earth's mass is distributed around the planet will cause the change in how the axis is rotated. So it's a bit like sitting on a half-empty Ryanair flight and people needing and to be distributed and mass, therefore people needing to be distributed evenly so that you don't get an uneven tilt or a balance on the plane. So all the land and the water that we have um, weighs different, it has different mass on Earth. And so the current distribution of it means that there's that tilt of 24 degrees. It gives us the, 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 the seasons um, and, and we're, we're sort of used to it. Um, but of course, the the water on on earth is an enormous component of the mass of earth and so previous research showed that the melting of glaciers um has actually caused the poles to move about four meters um since the 1980s because of the redistribution of all the the water that would have been solid and in one place is now liquid in in other places so scientists this week have just published work showing that irrigation has done the same thing so the runoff from irrigation has moved so much water from the land which is where you know we, we deposit it and um, because we're irrigating our land then it runs off into the sea and it has such an effect that the the earth's uh, axis has been tilted between 1993 and 2010 around 78 centimeters so like four centimeters a year it's moving just based on irrigation alone and this is it's difficult to isolate just that because there's obviously lots of things happening with glaciers was melting, etc. But they ran computer simulations demonstrating and showing that this was with the amount of irrigation that takes place where it happens um, and ultimately what happens to the amount of runoff that it would that would go into the, the, the sea, into the oceans and the rivers, then this is basically what they say has uh, been a contributing factor to the movement of, um, of the, the poles. And what's amazing to, to read when you're looking at this type of research is in the, in the last 50 years, humanity has removed, this is a number I can't even get my head around, but 18 trillion tons of water from underground reservoirs and used it obviously to keep humanity fed and watered and it's essential. But, you know, we're moving a lot of mass of water from one place into other places and then running it off into different, you know, into oceans and seas where it wouldn't have been before. So this is having a big effect, I think, on our, on our planet. Interesting. 
mildly worrying, but on my long list of things to keep me up at night, it's somewhere yeah. towards the bottom, right? I mean, it's, yeah. th- this. I mean, it seems like every week now, what I'm thinking is, is this what's going to get me? And I, I, I feel good about this story. I feel good about this story. This story is not the one well, that's going to get me, I don't although know it feel, is upsetting. Feel, yeah, I wouldn't feel great about it because obviously any amount of water into the ocean is increasing the, the, the you know, the, the, the sea levels, which we know has other devastating effects. So I guess I'm it's just, just trying to find thing. a silver cloud in the story. I, 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 I know we need to, you know, it's, it's always very upsetting when you do these stories and, you know, there are just, you know, we're not doing anything good. Well, we're making supermarket trolleys <laughs> save lives, maybe. I'm not you know sure. what? Just let's just quit while we're behind. <laughs> Um, our final story, it has to do with a plant that flowers and fruits underground, which I didn't know until this week, is very unusual. It is unusual. And, and this is research that came from the scientists at the Royal Botanic Gardens in Kew, as well as scientists in Indonesia and Malaysia, where the plant is found. The plant is called Pinanga subterranea. Um, and it's acceptable to fruit underground and it's acceptable to flower underground. But it's actually never been found bar one other plant that you can do both. Now, the reason you tend not to is because how do you disperse your pollen or your seeds? So what they found was that this fruit or this plant has its little sweet fruits, they're small little red almost berries, a couple of centimetres long, um, and its flowers, both underground. And it seems to make almost no sense. Now, in terms of dispersing the seeds, they know that there's a type of bearded pig that lives in on Borneo and it eats these plants and then it disperses the seeds in its feces. So that's fine. So we know how it disperses its seeds. But how does it pollinate? And they still don't know. So this has male and female flowers. And the essence of pollination is that a pollinator, usually a bee, flies into the male flower. It takes the pollen and it moves it to the female flower, usually of a different plant, same species, and it, it pollinates it. And that's where you get your fruit from. So how does it happen under the ground? It's buried in the soil and they don't know. And I don't know. I have decided completely based on absolutely nothing that it's worms. And I don't know why I decided that, but this is my decision, (laughs) even though all of the botanists haven't figured it out yet. But I figured it out this morning over my morning tea. But I don't know. I mean, thoughts and theories on this would be very interesting, but they don't know. And I don't know. But this is a fascinating new find. All right. If you are a botanist, um, what do you think of Laura's suggestion and how else would a plant get pollinated when all of its junk is underneath the soil um (laughs) (laughs) you can email us science at newstalk.com or you can text us 53106 dr lara dungan and dr susan keller thanks very much Now, uh, a woman in Scotland by the name of Joe Cameron was getting uh, an operation on her hip when her doctor noticed something funny about how she responded to pain in that she didn't feel it at all. And she turns out to be one of the very few people in the world who fears nothing, has very low anxiety, and also does not have an ability to feel pain. The opportunities to understand why this is can lead to amazing therapies at Dr. Andrei Okorokov is one of the lead authors in a new study on this woman. He joins me now. Welcome to the program, uh, Andre. Um, can you tell us a little bit about this this story of, uh, and exactly how you came across uh, Joe Cameron? Good afternoon uh, to everyone. I'm Andre. I work at University College London, and I'm a part of a much bigger team which works on this project. And the project started well, about seven, eight years ago, to be precise. 
And it started by a GP, uh, a general practitioner uh, in Scotland, identifying this uh, wonderful patient. And uh, she was uh, picked up and flagged because she didn't have any pain treatment when normal people take pretty much uh, a heavy one. So she needed, uh, let's say, two tablets of paracetamol for a hip transplant. So that is rather unusual. And uh, I am a part of the team, as I mentioned, who are constantly on hand for patients who do not feel pain. And it is hard to find those because they generally do not complain. No one is complaining, literally not having pain. People usually say the other way around. And we know pain is a massive problem. About 20% of all population is uh, in pain and uh, about 5-6% in severe pain. So we started this um, study by analyzing her genetics. And uh, essentially, it's uh, looking for a needle in a haystack because we constantly try to find those genes which are responsible for our sensing pain. And uh, once we find them, we try to pass it on to translational development teams who further down the road develop new, potentially develop new treatments. So this was interesting because it was completely new set of phenotypes, not just not feeling pain, but also uh, not having any anxiety, no depressions, no fear, and uh, generally very happy and perfectly normal in terms of cognitive abilities um, situation. So it took us about three, four years before we published the first report that was uh, back in 2019. And at that point, we only managed to pinpoint that specific gene where the mutation took place in her genome. So, so just before we, we go any further, Andre, yeah. how, how do you do that? Because um, we have six billion letters um, yes. in, our, in our genetic code. And, and of course, our genetic code from one person to another differs only very, very slightly. And what you're looking for are not um, brand new genes that stick out like a thumb, but alleles, versions of genes that most people already, almost all people have already. How on earth do you go about comparing one person's genes or a reference genome to Joe's to identify which of these individual genes or which cluster of genes are responsible for her remarkable ability to not feel pain? I think first, first of all, we uh, yes, you're right, absolutely right. It's a, it's a mammoth task actually to find a specific, especially point mutation when only one letter in this massive book of information we have is changed. So we first look at genes which are known to contribute to pain, and when we either found something which is already known and doesn't contribute to anything, or did not find anything, we look further. And essentially, in this particular case, we had to look all the way into the darkest corners of the very dark room, if you wish, because the mutation happened to be not even in a gene, which we know. It happened to be in a gene which we didn't know about. And that gene was, uh, and essentially it's done by uh, comparing her genetic information and genetic information from uh, members of her family to all what we know about human genetics. That's done by supercomputers and uh, by special bioinformatic tools. And at this point, our tools are pretty much up to task, I would say. It doesn't take that long. Um, although we have to do it a number of times to make sure that we did not make any mistakes. 
So it was in, incredible. So it, it, just a comparison to the uh, very popular Wordle game, if you wish. So this first report was uh, to identify one unique uh, position in a, in a guess the word game, in a way. In a way. And um, the mutation was in a, in a ancient in a gene, which we now call pseudogene which was uh, duplicated by Mother Nature a long time ago from a very important gene we have, and uh, essentially degraded to the point that it stopped producing any proteins. But it does produce a small molecule called uh, RNA, or long non-coding RNA, and non-coding comes from the point that it doesn't make any protein. And it happens to be a very important uh, molecule of RNA that controls the level how well ex uh, the normal main gene is expressed. So what you're talking about here is um, the, the the gene that lies within what what has been called before as junk DNA, considered to yeah. be not important genes that don't express proteins, but actually what they're doing is they're modulating the behavior Correct. of this other gene, and that's the gene that we associate with feeling of Very pain. true, very true. And that gene being taken out essentially by a small deletion and it's not expressed in, the, in your uh, chromosomes. So once you found that, presumably you then test this theory by um, using mice models and so on and, and testing whether or not, is that, is that, is that what happens uh, along the way? That would be a traditional way, but uh, interestingly, mice do not have that particular gene. Huh. They lost it a very long time ago in evolution. However, almost every other mammals, uh, mammal uh, does have the gene, so it's very conserved. We had to work with the human cells, cell cultures, and uh, improvise as much as we could. So how do you know it's these genes if you are working on human cells? Because human cells can't say, ow. <laughs> so you don't know if, if the pain, it doesn't exist. Well, we can, uh, we can uh, model the situation by uh, introducing similar mutation in human uh, cells. We can work with the cells produced uh, from uh, originally taken from a patient's cells and uh, uh, pushed into uh, almost neuronal type uh, behavior. We can model, uh, and, uh, and thankfully to us, this particular gene is not specific only to neurons. It also only works in the other organs, so uh, it was uh, easier for us to do the experimental system. Right, so you, you sort of built a model of pain Correct. based on neurons and then uh, modulated this gene, played around with the gene to see whether or not you would see the sort of pathways you would see in the body when it comes Correct. to uh, pain stimulus and then response. Correct. Okay, so this lack of pain sounds like a fantastic thing, but of course, zero pain can be quite dangerous. Can you talk to me a little bit about the challenges that Joe has when she goes about the daily business of her life? I cannot say for Joe and what her challenges uh, personally would be. I think uh, not having pain is very dangerous and a big problem for children specifically because it's our cognitive um, uh, protection barrier against uh, troublesome behavior, if you wish, so it protects us from potential damage we can get. We can get burn ourselves, we can cut ourselves. So pain is our signal not to do something or learn to do it a different way. Well, she seemed to overcome this problem completely and develop an absolutely wonderful human. Uh, but generally, you're absolutely right, not having pain uh, genetically from birth is 
could be a problem. Yeah, because you often have um, stories of people burning themselves without realizing, standing against radiators and, and so on, or or sometimes having bad injuries, having broken a leg and, and uh, or wrist, yes. which leads to sepsis or, or it can be a very dangerous situation. So I suppose what you want to do is find a way to sort of modulate this in a way or, or be able to turn it down without turning it completely off. It, talk to me about what your hopes are for studying the molecular pathways in, in this woman who doesn't feel pain. How can you take what you've learned into a therapy to help people with chronic pain, for example? You're absolutely right. We are aiming at uh, not to switch it off in every uh, normal human being. We are aiming to switch pain off in uh, chronic pain patients, of course. Uh, that means cognitive behavior and uh, learning abilities will not be affected. Uh, are they normally? Because you kind of said something earlier, which I, I thought was unusual, that the Joe's cognitive abilities are were sometimes. maintained. Does, does it happen sometimes if you don't feel pain that also yeah. you you don't develop properly from a, a brain point of view? Well, we're talking about about a hundred plus genes which are contributing to our pain sensation, and uh, some of them also play a role in our. Uh, neuronal uh, connections where for learning, uh, for memory, etc. Okay, so, yes, so, some so some people have learning disabilities or you talk about learning disabilities or are you but, talking about inability yeah. to speak? So, and so some of the patients could have, yeah. Okay, so you, when it comes to chronic pain, what is it that you're trying to, to do with, with the understanding that you now have? What, what, what is the way you translate your research with Joe into something that might be useful? I think we learned two main things here. Uh, first, that there is a natural blueprint, if you wish, where specific mutation uh, takes a very nice effect on, on, on our physiology without pain, without depression and anxiety. Uh, and uh, it's achieved by not mutating an important gene, but um, mutating a regulatory element which is located somewhere nearby. That's one thing. Second thing we learned that you do not have to switch activity of that important gene 100%, which so far is, is pretty much a dogma for a, an, an aim, a paradigm of a biopharmaceutical uh, uh, industry. When we all try to develop a drug which completely shuts something down or switches something off. Right. So over here we have about 70% down regulation. So we have about 30% of activity remaining. And it tells us that that's probably what we have to aim for. So that's something we try to reconstitute in our system to achieve that almost golden cut line. And um, so and so, so, to achieve that, um, are you talking about genetic therapies or um, injectables? How do you take... Um, something like chronic pain and transfer this genetic approach to it? So it could be double. Uh, first of all, it uh, could be genetic therapy when we will be targeting this uh, so-called pseudogen for majority uh, uh, piece, which now happened to be a very important regulatory bit. We can do that by genetic therapy, correct? We can uh, reproduce this uh, mutation from a patient by using viral approaches and uh, in a way in the last few years, as we witness uh, viral therapy, which are uh, doing it for vaccinations, etc., developed enormously. We learned a great deal. But we, as I mentioned before, we probably can go back and see all the drugs which used uh, tr been tried before and were, for some reason were not as efficient. 
according to our standards. And probably try them again in a different way, hoping to achieve that uh, 60-70% of down regulation. Right. And because maybe, that's, that would be much quicker than, than having to yes, go through because a, there are, there are existing medicine. drugs, of yeah. course. And maybe use them as a combination. And of course, what we want to do also is that now we can go into the mice models and now we can switch those enzymes in a very specific ways temporal and in a different organs and tissue and see where exactly we have to target it because we, do, we want to deliver it in a specific places right. to those pain sensor, uh, sensing centers. Okay, so this is, uh, as you mentioned at the, the top of this interview, that you know 20% of people live with pain. I mean, that, that is a, a lot of um, people with an unmet need and, and we've spoken on chron about chronic pain on this program before. It could be absolutely revolutionary, but um, you also s talked about anxiety um, and that, that Joe is unusual, that she doesn't feel fear or anxiety. Is that a spin-off from not feeling pain or is that something different? Because certainly anxiety and depression are, are also at large mountains that um, pharmacological and life sciences companies are trying to deal with. Have we figured out why Joe doesn't feel those things? Is it because of the same gene? We're actually figuring that out, yes. And uh, uh, it's a spin-off, but it's spin-off in this specific case for this specific enzyme we're dealing with, so specific gene combination. It so happens that this gene is a part of so-called endocannabinoid system. So it's a small fatty uh, acids or lipids which signal from one neuron to another and also from different cells. They uh, take part in signaling and immune system and in, uh, in uh, learning and memory and wound healing and in a mood control. And uh, yes, it's uh, absolutely exciting that we potentially can uh, regulate and control uh, moods like anxiety and, and, and depression in this particular situation. And I think we pulled out a few genes which are downstream of this mutation, what, ha what is happening and how it's happening. So we have a much better idea what to change and how, what to look at when we try to treat anxiety and depression now. Wow. I, I mean, to think that this, there, there could be a holy grail there that, that um, one patient might provide answers to, uh, to, to reducing chronic pain and uh, anxiety is, is, is almost, it sounds almost too good to be true, but it is also very exciting at the same time. So the very best of luck with your research. And thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Andrei Okorokov from University College London. Okay, it's time to look back at some of your messages from last week. And we were talking about extracting electricity from the atmosphere uh, using a very unusual material that has nano holes in it. A really ingenious idea that has enormous potential. Joan and Scary says, didn't Nikola Tesla create a means of extracting electricity from the air all the way back in the early 1900s? Well, Tesla was amazing, obviously, for, for lots of dis different reasons and also a, a really extraordinary character. And he did indeed explore trying to harness um, electricity from the atmosphere and even transmit it from one place to another across through the atmosphere in the air. Uh, but if you if you know his story at all, um, his, you know, unreliable finances and the, just the, the way uh, things sort of fell for him or the, the way um, he went about things meant that um, this idea never got a full realization um, and he never got to test out his theories and practicality um, 
I think he did build a tower in in um, on the east coast somewhere, um, but it never got, never got finished. Mick in Dublin was getting in touch um, because we were talking about the effects of napping on uh, preventing something like uh, dementia. There's new research suggesting that it might have a protective effect. And uh, Mick says, it never ceases to astonish me how little we know about sleep and its impact on us mentally and physically. I wonder if in hundreds of years people will look back on us and think about our rudimentary knowledge in this field as we now do on those who poo-poo germ theory or basic hygiene standards. Uh, indeed, Mick, um, that um, consciousness, I think, how we treat mental health, that's also you know something that I think is going to hor- horrify future generations. Um, Breed in Casabar says, I don't know, know about you, but naps make me sluggish and irritable for the rest of the day. I hate waking up. Once is enough. Thank you. Yeah, I kind of get that, Breed. I'm not much of a sleeper now, I have to say. I sleep, you know, I sleep six or eight hours at night, which is good, but I could never sleep in the middle of the day. A nap is just, I've got too much stuff to think about. Um, we were talking as well about, um, uh, you know, the energy and uh, someone says what a shame it it is that we never had the foresight or willingness to build nuclear reactors here in Ireland half a dozen would have sorted us entirely though the nimbyism in the country would never allow it look I I think nuclear was a hugely missed opportunity Uh, I think the you know the horror stories outweighed the enormous benefit to the world and I do think nuclear uh, could have saved us I think yeah, I still think we should probably look at developing modern um, fission reactors. They do have problems, of course, though. And what we do with that waste and how we make it secure is, of course, an issue. You know, Fukushima wasn't that long ago, although Chernobyl was. Um, and we were also talking about um, pregnancy after IVF. That uh, It turns out that one in five pregnancies are natural after having IVF treatment. Uh, someone says, do we know why that happens? Um, makes you wonder what else we don't know about treatments and its lasting effects. Look, I mean, the development of uh, an egg, a fertilized egg into a a baby is obviously a very complicated process. And uh, we are limiting ourselves in a way when it comes to this 14 day deadline of, 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 of ceasing all experimentation. There are ethical questions around it, of course, and it is complicated, but I do feel like maybe synthetic um, embryos might give us an opportunity to to go past that and and understand in better detail how these clusters of cells turn into functioning organs and viable pregnancies. Um, But there is, you know, there's there's understandable ethical uh, moral questions tied up in that. I'd love to know your thoughts. You can email us, science at newstalk.com. We'll get to all of those comments in next week's podcast. Thanks to Marisa Sullivan, Simon Keane, Steve Daunton, who got a silver on sound. We'll be back with more Future Proof in your podcast feed on Tuesday. In the meantime, stay curious. Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Sunday morning at 10 on News Talk.